Richard, thank you for the introduction. I'm delighted to have with me on the panel today Mogdwena Rees-Mogg. Mogdwena is, amongst other things, the founder of Angel News, an online news and event service for entrepreneurs and investors. She'll be discussing recent innovations in peer-to-peer -peer lending and crowdfunding. Many of these innovations have been driven by new technology platforms. Uh, Modwini has also uh, uh, been writing a book on crowdfunding, so I I'm very interested in what she has to say. Uh, Mike Cashman uh, heads up our tax practice. Um, he'll be talking today about how tax systems can influence the behaviour of companies and individuals. This can sometimes lead to surprising incentives influencing technology development. So, Modwini, over to you. Everybody, um, how many of you have heard about crowdfunding? Oh, that's pretty good. It's going to make my job a lot easier this afternoon. Okay, um, the crowdfunding is going to affect you lot in several ways. Can I just keep on flicking on? Sir? Sure. Uh, there, uh, there we go. Hey, um, uh, you are the crowd. You're already the crowd, aren't you? How many of you have given money via Just Giving to charity? Yep, pretty much all everyone. How many of you pay for a TV licence and therefore crowdfund the BBC? <laughs> Not so bad. Ah, interesting. Anyone from the BBC here who wants to comment on this? <laughs> Good. Okay, the point about crowdfunding for you lot is that in the future, your competitors, particularly the new ones who are up and coming, will be crowdfunded. So you need to know and understand it so that you can understand how they're thinking and behaving. Um, and I predict that even though many of you are lawyers in large corporates, that somewhere in your business at some point in the next five years, you will crowdfund yourself for something. Or you will create some sort of crowdfunding innovation. I, one of the, in financial services, I see insurance being a major area. Suddenly we'll see crowdfunding of insurance. So that's why I think about it. Um, some of this you may be very familiar with, so I'll try and sort of canter through it. Um, and we'll take questions at the end. So um, what is crowdfunding? Well, there's very different types, and this is something that is quite important because I think people tend to see it as a fairly generic thing. There's what I'm calling pledge donation reward-based funding, where pretty much the funder gives money and there might be a reward or there might not, but there's no legal contract other than whether something is given as a reward. There's no um, equity or debt involvement and financial incentive. Um, then you get into debt, which is a really big world. Um, how many of you know Funding Circle? One or two. So they've raised about 70 million in the last couple of years for companies. How many of you, though, know Thin Cats? Okay, Thin Cats, a little website set up by an ex-venture capitalist in Birmingham with a couple of hundred grand. In the last year, he's raised 14 million pounds of debt for small companies. So it's happening quickly and it's happening fast and it's happening big. Then there's equity, which is the great controversial one, is sort of a, particularly for the traditionists of how can we let these, you know, little investors putting in 10 quid buy shares in a privately owned company that they can't sell and might go bust. That's the sort of big one that is causing the controversy in a legal, from a legal perspective. There's also a whole world of sort of social investment. So there's the Kivas and people, but to think just giving and think uh, connecting that to sort of business type models and you get there with the social crowdfunding. And then what's interesting is also there's an increasingly, increasing growth of very highly specialist platforms. One called Abundance Generation does, just does clean tech crowdfunding. So all sorts of things going on. Um, 
And why does it work? Because the crowdfunding platforms do a really useful job. The internet is the perfect way to do it. And actually, the, the sort of fee, the business model of a crowdfunding platform is pretty sweet. You have some quite, actually, it's in many ways, I think, more predictable as a business model than many other financial services type models. Um, uh, so, and I think they, they, I've read some research recently, and they said that the crowdfunding market was worth about $1.5 billion last year in 2012. But I wouldn't be surprised to see that grow tenfold in the next two to three to five years. There's something like 500 and something crowdfunding sites now operating worldwide already. And there'll be new ones starting all the time. So we've talked a little bit about who, the, sort of who they are, but broadly speaking, these are the names you need to be watching out for. I'll be amazed if you haven't seen Market Invoice mentioned in the papers. Have, have how many of you know Market Invoice? Have you seen it? It's an amazing... Well, it does, uh, it does asset-based uh, auctions of invoices. So if you're a big, big corporate trying to... Um, do business with a smaller company mm -hmm. and you're paying on 90 days, they can put that invoice and, your, and the PO up on market invoice, auction invoice, and get their money 24 hours later and you still only have to pay them in 90 days. It's a big advantage for big corporates in terms of supplier relations. Um, uh, Crowdcube and Cedars have been setting up the sort of the equity type things and that's the interesting thing. Suddenly, not, it's no longer the world of Dragon's Den with two or three angel investors funding things. You've got cases of 50, 100, 500 investors, all investing between £10 and £100,000 to back a company to get it going. And those people are not just, the, they are the shareholders, but they're also, more importantly, sort of champions, they're the customers, they're the engaged community around that company, which is why it's really important for you when you're thinking about new competitors coming up in your market. You know, if, if they're coming not just with a bit of money and a slightly innovative model, but with you know, several hundred or maybe even thousands of people who are already <coughs> supporting them, that means they can move very quickly and have a big impact. Um, so, um, but they're broadly speaking all pretty new. Most of them, as far as I'm aware, have set up their businesses with a couple of hundred thousand pounds, maybe half a million. Um, interestingly, the venture capital world is now investing in these platforms. So I think Index have put some money into Funding Circle. Um, so, you know, the venture capital community, even though it's weirdly competitive with them in terms of pro providing finance, is actually seeing the business opportunity there. Um, so why do people do it? So how, how many of you have actually done a pledge funding on something like Kickstarter? Oh, okay, so mainly the left-hand side, right-hand side, left-hand side of the room, okay. So that's amazing. You can go on, and this is the big story. So the Pebble e-paper watch went up on Kickstarter to raise $100,000. About five or six weeks later, it had $10.5 million dollars. Now, partly because the crowd sort of thought that would be fun, you know, if we're going to get it, let's, if we're going to make it big, let's try and get it over $10.5 million is the rumour. But the fact is, this interesting sort of, you know, iPhone on a watch, which no doubt Apple could do if they wanted to or whatever, you know, um, has had $10.5 million of funding and 68,000 backers. So that's 68,000 sales. Um, and it hadn't produced a watch. It, had, it broadly had the technology... Interesting challenges for crowdfunded things when they do go sort of that well. You can, you're no longer making this thing in your garage at home. You're out in China trying to source how you manufacture 68,000 of them. But it's a very interesting thing. And it's gonna, it started off really with the sort of whole um, music, CD, artist, gaming type world. And now it's moving into gadgets. And those are being perhaps crowdfunded with pledges. Um, so the customers are actually paying for the business development not investors in the sense that you and I would perhaps understand them. 
Um, so, but it's going to move into other areas, these specialist platforms where people have said, oh, you can't possibly do biotech or medical science or the really, really difficult material science. You know, it wouldn't surprise me to see it not to see a website, a crowdfunding website for these sorts of things. It might be more pledge or donation than equity, but you know, let's wait and see. But I firmly believe they're going to come. Um, so, crowdfunding, if you're going to do one, is quite interesting because you have to basically be this online public presence. And goodness knows, the lawyers in the room will know much better than me about the sort of data protection and publicity things. But um, basically, they have to get their, they have to have a cool video. Um, that doesn't mean it has to be an expensive video. Um, they have to be able to understand their numbers, and most of the projects that aren't that sort of get funding and fail, it's because they haven't fully costed in the cost of actually delivering what they want to deliver. Um, but if you can and make a profit in a pledge world, the profit's yours. Nobody's, you know, no questions asked. Um, rewards is a really fun area. Uh, the typical rewards, are something like the the Pebble Watch, was you know we'll send you a watch if you give us X many dollars now um, when we've actually made the watch. But we are seeing things like. Um, I'll reward you by writing your name on the front wall of my house. So I don't know if there are any data protection or anything issues there. But um, so it's going to you know it's going to really explode as people's imaginations take off. Um, interesting things around rewards and in the tax break world when it's in the sort of investing side of how does if you give a reward impact on maybe things like tax break schemes like EIS and things. So in the equity world, how the reward reward world and the equity world will collide and impact is still it's really early days nobody's quite sure what's going to happen um but the interesting thing is the timetable with the crowdfunding it's sort of you're up there for 30 days trying to get your project and campaign away um whether it's equity or whatever um but uh you know at the end of it you've done it or you haven't and you either then say i'm going to try again better or it worked or you're going to give up but there's these timetables the sort of six to nine month fundraising you know trudging the streets um, of the city or wherever else is, isn't there. It's a sort of 30-day mad campaign, 24-7. Um, uh, when it comes to the debt funding, how long do you think it's taking these smaller companies to raise their debt, do you think, from putting their proposal up online to getting the money, typically? Anyone want to guess? Three days. That's really long, maybe one or two. <coughs> so that's, you know, that is a big difference in terms of sort of commercial efficiency. So, um, uh, but it is very much more about the whole person. It's about you. Crowdfunding is about you. It's a personal thing. Um, so you can't, it's no longer the anonymous corporate raising. It's the people raising. And, and that's an interesting thing. And the, the corollary for them is they have to be on top of it and know what they're doing. And things like your, your profile in the past and what's been going on in your life is going to become a very public matter of concern for many, many people. And it is happening, particularly in the equity world's uh, entrepreneurs are finding it quite challenging being having things put on the web saying in, on a, some sort of board, you know, what about your, you know, um, bad credit history, circa, whatever. Um, so um, does it work? Um, well, the truth is that more projects on Kickstarter fail than succeed at the moment. Um, there's no consensus on an obvious reason because you can have a fairly, for example, amateur video um, and the project somehow captures the crowd's heart and it raises loads of money and more than you expected. You have a really professional video and it doesn't take off. So, you know, it could be the project's a bit dumb, but then you might see some really dumb project get some funding. The real point I think that everyone has to think about is this idea of the crowd, because it's not just any old crowd, it's your crowd. 
Um, and I sort of call it the inside crowd and the outside crowd. So there's the inside crowd, which is your crowd, and then there's the outside crowd, which is other people. And they may join your inside crowd or they may not. But it is a different, it's a much more sort of personal one-to-one, many-to-one type relationship. Um, but it's not all going to be, you know, it's not, crowdfunding is not the panacea that gives 100% success. Um, and I doubt it will in any of the sectors that there will be that fairly high failure rate. And I suspect as it matures and when, whether maturity will be three years or 10 years, I don't know. But I think you'll see a conforming of the statistics with these sort of 80 20 type rules and things that you see in business generally. I don't think the crowd is going to revolutionize um, those sorts of statistics. So, um, and where does it fit? Well, the truth is, it fits everywhere. So you can have a GoFundMe you know, type campaign and get somebody to pay for your year off gap year, or you could ask your granny to do it. So it's fitting with friends and family. Um, you know, Pebble Watch is doing, you know, um, $10.5 million. So that's probably more than many UK VCs would be funding um, in terms of amounts of money. And, um, you know, when you've got a situation where, which we will have is an equity funded project, which will have 500, 1,000, maybe 10,000 investors over time, because it will crowdfund once and then again and then again. Uh, you know, at what point does that stop being, uh, is, is that not a primary market in its own? And what, at what point does Crowdcube say, well, let's create a secondary market? And then, so how does that fit with AIM? So it is, um, it is everywhere and it's going to be um, uh, suitable, I think, that everybody's going to be able to do it. And they'll be doing it either personally or they'll be doing it in business. Um, so... Um, uh, and I think as the demand rises, more entrepreneurs will see it and see it as an opportunity, so more will do it. So the quality will rise to the top, so more people will be more stories and more people give it a go. And for investors, this is where it starts getting really interesting, particularly on the debt platforms, because we're seeing gross yields of 7, 8, 9 to 13%, 14% per annum. So, for, so even the angels I know who say that crowd, crowd equity is the worst thing that's ever happened and it's going to destroy the these poor entrepreneurs, they won't be able to cope with 200 shareholders and it will go horribly wrong, um, they're sticking 50 grand on thin cats and taking the money. So um, uh, I think the business model of a platform operator is very sweet indeed. You can get up and running for a couple of hundred grand. Soon you'll be able to, there'll be somebody offering white label platforms and you'll be able to get one of those off the shelf. Um, and um, you can really, because of the way campaigns work, you can predict with a lot of certainty compared with, say, a corporate finance practice where nobody ever quite knows whether the deal will close or not, in the crowd, you'll know that in 30 days' time that campaign's going to be over. You'll be able to work out the stats of whether you have, um, you know, whether it's going to work or not, and you'll be able to calculate your fees. So I think it's going to be that's a real incentive. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of M&A over time in the crowdfunding platform business. Uh, so there's a real sort of capital gain opportunity there for both the founders and investors in them. Um, so, uh, and it's, um, as I say, it will be from the 10 quid investor or pledger through to the £100,000 investor or pledger. So who, who's investing? Um, uh, when I wrote my book, I had to try and, it's quite hard to write 60,000 words on crowdfunding at the moment because there's actually an awful lot of examples of how things are started and very few of things where there's outcomes. But um, one of the things I did was try and understand the crowd, understand you lot, and we came up with a load of definitions. So... Things like the, the sort of the gambler who just goes and sticks something on the horses, as it were, and then there's the one who actually looks for form. Um, uh, there are the the angels who get it and see that it is something they have got to do and understand or be part of, because actually they will be able to put maybe go in and fund 
50% of a crowdfunding equity project by themselves as the angel. Um, uh, and, of course, we're seeing the hobbies and the family-type people who do it because you know, they know the person. Um, but in the debt world, we're already seeing family offices and institutional fund managers putting their money onto these platforms. Um, uh, even the government is lending money via these platforms now. <coughs> David Cameron's been incredibly all-embracing of this crowdfunding movement and positive photographs of him with arms around entrepreneurs setting up crowdfund platforms. So um, you can see where the mood music is. Um, and I expect that the banks will, they'll, they'll either set up their own and buy one and try and make it work, but I suspect they'll end up actually, they will be putting money onto these platforms because if they're getting 13%, why wouldn't they? So, um, and who, who is it? Everyone's doing it. So um, uh, it's really suitable though for consumer facing companies, obviously. Anyone who's got something where they're actually selling something that the crowd is going to buy, it's a sort of obvious. Uh, joining up, and um, and particularly if you've got a good crowd of your own, there's a company called Escape the City. How many of you have heard of Escape the City? Right, you're obviously really happy in your jobs. It's a, a website where you can basically register and find a new job, which is more fun than your current one, um, particularly from the city. And so, um, and they are, um, but they basically had an enormous crowd of like 90, 95,000 people already using their website, and they used their they used um, uh, Crowdcube just to. Uh, as actually as a sort of just the management system because they wanted to raise some money off that crowd. So, um, but they raised several hundred thousand pounds again in just a few days. Um, uh, we're seeing mature companies being able to raise funding on these platforms because they are being looked at differently by the crowd and the crowd is assessing its risk. Um, so the ones that are being turned, all those sort of middle England companies you hear saying, bash the banks, they're awful. Um, they're turning to these platforms and it's working and they're getting money. Um, uh, and we're seeing the sort of, you know, as I say, these alternative finance models coming up and having web-type solutions. So I don't know how many of you are involved in, with your finance departments, but it might well be worth some of you having a chat to your finance director saying, you know, this seems a bit small now, but take a look at it because, you know, maybe it's for us. And maybe we'll get a crowdfund platform that says, I'll do a big corporate bond somehow. I, you know, wouldn't surprise me. So... Um, so, I'm, I'm, I'm no lawyer um, at all, but just that there are some very interesting issues arising about regulation around this site, uh, around this industry. Um, the big act in the US that was meant to come through last year was called the Jobs Act, which is the Jump Start Our, Jump, Jump Start Our Businesses, Business Startups Act. Um, and Obama made a big thing about this because crowdfunding had started to take off in the US. It was out of control from a regulate from the SEC's perspective. Um, and it was either the case of kill it or you know, find a way to let it run. Um, if I'd given this talk a month ago, I would have been going, oh, it's about to happen, the Jobs Act, it's all set, the US is going to lead the world. And then the SEC um, put it on hold on the 1st of January. So we, we are waiting to see what, what happens. The big fear in the US is fraud. And all these dodgy people go up. The truth is, in the crowd, the fraudsters might survive once, but they're not going to survive much longer because the crowd will find out and the crowd will tell, tell the rest of the crowd. And actually the transparency created by the crowd will probably, I think, uh, reduce fraud, not increase it. Um, uh, in the UK, the debt platforms have all come together and said to the government, please regulate us, which is unheard of as a, you know, as a strategy that is not one I personally would have adopted. And so they've now agreed to work with the FSA to create their own regulatory framework to govern the sort of debt and alternative debt financing platforms. Um, 
the equity platforms, interesting, the first one that really got going was Crowdcube, and it found a very neat way through the Financial Services Act to get to a sort of legally watertight position without technically, without having to be regulated. Um, in practice, they're all going to get FSA regulated, and they'll sort of start fitting into that angel world of how private investors can invest in things. So I think you'll see issues about certification and things like that, about who, who's allowed to invest in the crowd. But you've got an interesting issue that should somebody, you know, who wins 100 quid in the lottery not be allowed to put 10 quid into 10 companies on a crowdfunding platform because they want to? Is, is, you know, under the current way legislation is heading, that would sort of be not allowed because it's too risky for that person because they've only got 100 quid. But actually... You know, is that the right philosophical way to go? So I think all those debates to be had, but I think the FSA is going to get very interested very soon. Um, uh, as I say, government's really uh, supportive, really interesting. I, how many of you know about the EIS and SEIS schemes? Okay, how many of you got? How many of you have got a bit of spare cash that you could afford to lose and want to pay less income tax? Anyone? None of you? Okay, well, I reckon all of you have probably got something. You know, there's, there are basically various tax break schemes by the government to encourage individuals to invest in small businesses. They're called the EIS and SEIS schemes. You get between 30 and 50% income tax breaks, all sorts of luxury capital gains tax breaks, provided you invest that cash into a small company. So go and talk to your accountants because it might be interesting for you. Uh, clearly very risky, and I'm not giving any personal financial advice when I say that. So, so, um, uh, so, um, but there are going to be all sorts of issues arising as the crowd gets more complicated and people try to do more clever things and be more innovative because you're going to start finding the innovation hitting up against the regulation and what's going to happen. So... Um, Sometimes when I talk about this, I sort of like to think, what, you know, what's the role of advisors? And I think from the, the checklist, most of the, the guest list, most of you are actually lawyers working in larger corporates. So um, this maybe isn't directly for you, but uh, just uh, you see where the, sort of the, the support service world is going to work around this. Um, so it's going to be you know, adv advising people on investing in these platforms. There's going to be M&A around the platforms. Um, uh, there's going to be, there's interestingly, there's an accountancy firm, Crow Clark Whitehill. They've actually publicly put their weight behind a, a crowdfunding platform called Bank to the Future, and they're sort of monitoring all the deals that go through. So there's this real sort of interesting alight, sort of ch shifting of relationships, um, but the fact that people are seeing the commercial opportunity not just as a platform operator or using the platform, but helping the market in some way. I think it's going to be a real issue around IP disputes. We've already seen Kickstarter named in an IP dispute. Um, to do with one small company that did a, a pledge funding on its uh, platform. Um, and, of course, there's going to be the sort of general advisory roles. Um, so uh, you, I'm sure, will find ways to make money out of the crowd. I really hope you do, because it's really exciting and interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the obvious ones are going to be people who actually will make videos for companies, or, you know, I think there's quite a few publishers in the room today. You'll be publishing books and manuals on how to crowdfund successfully, and all the other things um, will be going on. Um, and uh, interesting, there's going to be much more, I think, of a sort of who, who makes fees along the way, because nearly all the platforms are offering introducer-type arrangements. So there's a sort of who's going to earn fees, and I'm sure for the, the lawyers that's going to create some interesting challenges, because how do you trace, how do you prove that you did it if everyone's already in the crowd? Is that person your investor, or are they the crowd, part of the crowd? Um, so, and watch the predictions. Okay, so there's going to be a few more billionaires Probably all of them will be about 10 or 15, 20 years younger than all of us. Um, uh, and um, they will make their money very quickly. Uh, as I said, I think the market's going to be worth 
$10 billion, $20 billion worldwide in the next three to five years, roughly. Um, uh, um, we're at the start of a bubble in crowdfunding, no question, and therefore you're going to have pro a proliferation of sites, you're going to have crashes, you're going to have consolidations. Who will be the winners? Will the US win in this area too? Um, I think they might, but I think maybe not in some of the debt and other stuff, because I think the British are pretty, or the, the British as a financial centre, so not necessarily Britons of birth, but people working and living in Britain and being entrepreneurial in Britain, will, I think, that we're very good at innovating in this country in terms of financial services. So I suspect some of the, some of the strategic solutions, particularly around equity and debt, will come from this side of the Atlantic, not America. Um, uh, I think we're going to end up with all sorts of different types of platforms for different sorts of people, and you'll see that happening. But I think also this is, at the end of the day, this is a financial services business. And just like the City of London, companies grow, emerge, get big, something happens, they merge, they get smaller, they get even bigger. You'll see all those similar patterns. What you're not going to see, I don't believe, is two or three dominant crowdfund fund platforms which take 80% of the market. I don't think it's going to work like that. Um, uh, so uh, that's sort of, I think... Just about it. Thank you very much. Um, my topic today is to talk about tax, technology, and regulation. And I have to say, when I got given this topic, I scratched, I scratched my head a little bit, because essentially all tax is a form of regulation. So I, I sort of wondered what I should be talking about. Uh, you will be pleased to know that I have thought of a topic. And what I thought it might be interesting to look at is how tax can impact on uh, tech innovation, and in particular how it's used as a tool by the government or various governments around the world to encourage particular activities and support particular areas. Now, I'm sure you'll all know that governments use the tax system to influence the behaviour and activities of individuals and corporates. A uh, classic example is that it can discourage certain activities by imposing tax on them. Classic one is the so-called sin taxes, which are taxes on cigarettes and alcohol, which are designed to discourage people from smoking and drinking, although I do wonder at times whether that actually works. Uh, the government also looks at encouraging activities and encouraging particular behaviour through the use of tax incentives. And one area where they particularly look to use tax incentives and all governments around the world do this, is in the development and exploitation of technology. And they do this by the use of incentives at either end of the process. They'll give you possibly investor incentives to invest in companies, which we'll talk about in a moment. They give you a company an incentive to carry on R&D activities. And then at the end of the process, they'll give you possibly a reduced rate of tax on the income derived from your IP that you develop. And what I thought particularly demonstrated this was a quote that I found from David, David Cameron, who said, this government believes that technology-based innovation will be one of the key drivers of the private sector-led economic growth that Britain so urgently needs. The dynamics of the global economy have been changing for some time, with technology and innovation at the heart of new economic opportunities. So that's very clear steer that the government considers that supporting innovation and supporting tech innovation in particular is very important. So what I'd like to start off with is looking at some incentives uh, for investors. 
Now, Modwen attack uh, touched upon some of the incentives I'm going to talk about for individuals, which are the EIS and the SEIS scheme. But one question is why, why do the government feel they need to give incentives uh, for, for these activities? I think ultimately carrying on R&D activities and other innovative activities is inherently risky. What you'll find is that few R&D projects are likely to end up as marketable new products or processes, and often only after a long and uncertain payback period. So it makes it difficult for these firms to raise finance from your friendly bank or from other sources. So to encourage investment in these high-risk-taking companies, the government offers you an incentive. And that will give you an additional benefit if the investment goes well, or if it goes badly, the government will share your pain, more so than they do now. Now, although these are general incentives, they're not specifically aimed at investment in tech companies, what you find is a practical matter that tech companies are significant beneficiaries of incentives such as EIS cash. I'm sure everyone in the, in the room has come across a medtech, cleantech or nanotech company, just to name a few, that are backed by EIS money. And there are also various funds specifically investing in the tech sector. Parkwalk, Highgate, Oxford Technology, Foresight, just to name a few. Now, these incentives are very, very favourable. If we look at the EIS scheme to start with, what that gives you, as Marwen had mentioned, is 30% upfront income tax relief. So you invest £100 in the company, you immediately get £30 that you can set off against your income tax liability. That's great. There's no capital gains tax when you sell your shares. Uh, there's a holding period of three years. And you also get loss relief at any time if the investment fails. SEIS is even better. SEIS, they give you 50% upfront income tax relief. No capital gains tax on sale. There's a three-year holding period, and again, you get loss relief. So what that means is that if the investment goes well, you walk away with £30 from the government as a reduction in your income tax liability. You walk away with your entire gain tax-free. If it goes badly, then under the SIS scheme, the government underwrites 78% of your loss. That's, that's a pretty good deal. There's various requirements you need to satisfy. And to stop people taking too much of a bonanza here, uh, you are allowed to invest a million pounds a year in EIS, but only 100,000 in, in SEIS. <coughs> now, just to give you some idea of how successful these reliefs have been, I think around a billion pounds in total has been raised through EIS schemes for EIS businesses. And I think that's probably over 20,000 businesses that have been supported by EIS since the uh, scheme was first introduced. In 2010 alone, 600 odd million pounds was raised. In the years 27 and 28, it was well in excess of 700 million pounds. So these, these incentives are big business, and they are, they are quite valuable incentives. So if you're looking at investing money, finding an EIS investment can be quite valuable. If you're a small business looking at raising money, then offering the opportunity for investors to benefit from EIS or SEIS 
or any of the other reliefs available can greatly make your company significantly more attractive to investors. And these are all, as I mentioned, incentives the government have put into place to encourage investment into small, high-risk, innovative companies. Uh, I've also mentioned a relief for companies there, which is video gaming. Uh, given time, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it, but I did put it there simply because I found it an interesting relief. It says a lot about me, I think, as a tax lawyer. Now, the EIS and SEIS relief is a general relief. Any company, providing it's not carrying on a a few limited activities can benefit from this relief. But what I'd like to do is look at some incentives specifically targeting technology. And I think the starting point is why does almost every government offer tax incentives to bolster the development of IP? The UK, I think, is one of the, is one of the governments that's taken a leading role in supporting R&D activities, uh, the exploitation of IP. But every, every country pretty much around the world is trying to do something to attract companies to carry on R&D activities and holding and exploiting of IP. And I think there's a number of reasons, but firstly, R&D is a crucial investment for the long-run long growth of the company, oh, the economy, sorry. It helps maintain jobs, especially in times of crisis. It contributes to national competitiveness now, where this is particularly important is where you have a multinational enterprise which has a choice as to where it carries on its R&D. It has a choice as to where it holds its intellectual property. And the government's competing with each other to attract the company to carry on these activities and hold the IP in its particular jurisdiction. The tax incentives are the tool the government uses to do this. Uh, R&D is risky, and R&D generates public, public goods as well. So other companies can benefit from the know-how which is developed. Now, the government, as I mentioned, introduces incentives. Now, the incentives can take many forms. They can be a front-ended incentive, so it could be a tax credit in your R&D activities. could be what I've called a super deduction. could be a cash grant. could be a combination. The other thing you might find is a back-ended incentive, such as a reduced tax for income associated with IP when you're there developing it, when you're there exploiting it. Now, if I look at, at R&D, the most common form of incentive you get is either a super deduction or a tax credit. And a super deduction is simply a deduction of more than 100% of the expenditure. So to give a few examples, Brazil, you can get up to 200% deduction for your R&D expenditure. China will give you 150%. The Czech Republic, that well-known institute of uh, growth, 200%. India, 200%. And the UK will give you a staggeringly good 225% deduction if you're a small and SME or 130% for large companies. So the UK, the UK is quite generous in its incentives for R&D. The alternative is some countries give tax credits. A tax credit is a credit against a tax which is payable. Uh, 
Australia, 45%. Canada, 35%. France, 40%. Ireland, 25%. They're all significant. And they're all trying to attract R&D activities to their particular jurisdiction. Now, in looking at where might be the best jurisdiction to carry on your R&D activities, the incentives that are available are just one thing to look at. The other thing to look at is the requirements that you have to satisfy to benefit from uh, this R&D tax incentives. Some countries require the R&D to be carried on in their country. Some will allow contracting out, some won't. Some require you to hold the IP once it's been developed. And there's often limitations as to what constitutes a qualifying R&D expenditure. So, as you can see just from that very brief run through, there's a number of incentives, a variety of requirements. And if you're in the UK and you're carrying on R&D, it's important to make sure you're getting the, the full advantage of the incentives available. If you're a multinational, you should compare and contrast the incentives and requirements in, making, in obtaining the incentives to select the best jurisdiction and the most favourable jurisdiction for you to carry on your R&D activities, because the benefits can be quite significant. Now, just to demonstrate how widespread the competition is, I thought I'd list a few countries on a table, uh, just to give you an example of who gives R&D incentives. And I found that there were so many, I couldn't actually fit them onto one slide without making them very small, which I think counts as nanotech. <laughs> so I'll put it on two slides. Now, there are some countries that you might expect to be there that aren't. Uh, Luxembourg, for example, doesn't give super deductions or tax credits. It does give you a very favourable uh, patent regime and it does give you some cash grants. Which leads me on to some of the other incentives you can get. Some countries offer cash grants, such as Ireland and Luxembourg. The reason they do this is that it enables governments to target the money to specific projects rather than just generally. Another benefit is that many governments will allow companies to claim cash back on R&D incentives. France, for example, will give you a credit, a payment for any unused tax credit if you don't use it within three years. UK has a great deal for SMEs. They can claim up to just under 25% of your qualified expenditure as a cash payment. This is quite big business in the UK. There's a vast number of firms out there who are willing to help companies reclaim their cash uh, payments. And for a small SME, that can significantly help with cash flow. The UK is introducing an above-the-line tax credit, uh, which will possibly lead to a tax a cash payment. And the idea behind that is simply it will form, they're hoping it will form more of a part of the business case for business people who are looking at uh, carrying on R&D activities rather than a below-the-line benefit, which is only picked up by the accounting people uh, as and when. Now, we've looked at the incentives at the beginning of the innovation cycle. And as I mentioned, there are also benefits at the end of the cycle when you generate income from exploiting intellectual property. Now, generally, what this benefit is is a reduced corporate tax rate 
for income arising from the exploitation of certain IP, generally, generally through about a 50 to 80% deduction or exemption for qualified IP income. Now, just looking at the EU, over the last 10 years, six EU countries have adopted a patent box regime, which I'm sure you've all heard of. Now, that sharply reduces the tax rate on qualifying IP to a nominal rate of 5 to 15%. The effective rate you can end up with is actually quite, can be significantly lower because you take into account tax depreciation and other deductions which are available. Uh, we looked at a transaction not that long ago for a company which was buying a business. And this company had done some research about where to hold its IP, set up an IP holding company in Luxembourg. What it did was it sent some people there to give the business some real substance. And when it bought the business from, from our client, uh, the IP was purchased by the Luxembourg company. The uh, other activities were carried on by an Irish company they had and uh, some UK company as well. Now, what they managed to do from this structure was that effectively 90% of their income they were able to justify running through the, I, the Luxembourg company. And they got their tax rate down in Luxembourg to somewhere between 1% and 2% on this income. Now, if you look at 1% and 2% in Luxembourg versus your corporation tax rate anywhere else, this is a significant saving. And this made you know, an immense amount of sense and an immense amount of uh, profit for the, for the buying company. Now, one thing to look at is that while the headline tax rates are important, there are a number of issues you need to look at on a jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction -jurisdiction basis. For example, the precise type of IP that can benefit from the reduced tax rates varies between countries. Some limit it to patent income only. Others will include design, copyright and models. And the Dutch go even further, and they include some forms of unpatented intangibles, provided they're developed as a result of approved R&D activities in the Netherlands. Some countries will recognise only IP which is developed in that jurisdiction. Some will give you the breaks for acquired IP. Some will give you a benefit for embedded IP, where the IP itself isn't directly exploited, but it's contained or is represented in a product or process that itself generates income. So I think there are quite a few ho hoops to go to, but as you can see from my Luxembourg example, the rewards can actually be quite significant for a multinational group, or even for a UK group, or even for a UK standalone business. Uh, if they can benefit from the forthcoming patent box, there's some scope to see what income we can actually include in the patent box rules. But there is scope there to reduce your tax significantly. I've just set, up, uh, set out a few examples there of the IP incentives that are available for in various countries around the world. Uh, I'd like to finish just by touching briefly on the UK patent box rules. Um, the patent box, I'm sure lots of you have heard about it, probably everybody. 
It's essentially giving you a 10% rate of corporation tax, which will apply to the net income arising from patents. It's also applying to embedded income, which is the income derived from products, processes, etc., which effectively make use of the, of the patented IP. Now, it's a phasing in period where 60% of the benefit applies and then 70 and so on and so on. Uh, the phasing in is a quid pro quo for the wide application because it's going to apply to, apply to both existing and future patents. Our patent box regime applies to companies only. The one downside of the patent box regime is that the calculation to determine the amount of embedded income that can benefit is actually extremely complicated. And I, I'm concerned that that's going to be the one uh, unattractive piece of the UK patent box rules, that by the time you sit and work through all your examples, and I've, I've done a few that reduce the corporation tax down to rather than 10%, I think it got it down to something like about 19 and a half by the time you'd, you'd plugged in all the, all the various bits and pieces. So we have to wait and see how that's going to play out in practice and, and finally work. But that might encourage people to go to other jurisdictions. I mean, Luxembourg gives you 5.7-ish uh, percent with very few restrictions and a much simpler calculation. So I think that's me done. Um, I think what I'd just like to leave you with is one small thought, which is tax technology and regulation has given rise to a number of tax incentives. Tax incentives are given to individual investors. Uh, tax incentives are also given to companies for their tech innovation. It's important to make sure that, to the extent possible, you take advantage of all of these incentives, whether it's you as an individual investor claiming your EIS relief or your SEIS relief, whether it's you as a company seeing if you can get EIS or SEIS relief to encourage your investors, or you as a business in carrying on R&D to develop IP, to hold and exploit IP, to making sure you take full advantage of any incentives that you can to minimise your, your tax charge. Thank you, Richard, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, I've been asked to set the scene, so um, really the starting point <coughs> is to consider what we mean by standards. Now, there are various definitions. I've just put a couple up on the slide here. But the key point is that we're talking about an agreed way of doing something, whether it's a quality standard, a technical specification, or just some other form of standardization. A standard can be voluntary or mandatory. And standards can be set by formal standard setting bodies, such as ETSI, which, um, and some of which are officially recognized in EU law. There are private standard-setting bodies, which are usually industry-led, and there are the de facto standards that emerge because a particular technology becomes predominant on the market, such as uh, Microsoft Windows, which became the de facto standard for client PC operating systems. So why do we have standards? Whilst it sometimes feels like this, there are real benefits to be had. 
First, standards can achieve significant efficiency gains. They can reduce transaction costs and cut down on bureaucratic burdens. They can facilitate market integration, allowing companies to market their goods more widely. Standards have the biggest impact on technology by providing interoperability, which is critical in an ever more interconnected world. Harmonised standards can provide greater clarity and certainty that a new product will meet um, the, the criteria uh, for, for marketing um, and promote new market entry in that way. Standards can um, promote innovation build it by bringing a new technology to the market quicker because companies are able to build on top of agreed standards. Standards facilitate the sharing of knowledge on best practice within an industry and they also inform consumers, um, giving them greater information and guarantees of performance and quality. Finally, harmonised standards have a hugely important role in facilitating international trade. Participa participation in standard setting can be time-consuming, but it does offer real advantages in the long run. It can allow a company to influence the direction of a standard and to prepare for change. There can be a competitive advantage in being a first mover. There may also be significant commercial and technical advantages to having your IP included within a standard. It provides a forum for industry knowledge sharing and can bring um, greater certainty to a company about its own IP and the IP of its competitors um, in the areas that have been covered by the standardisation. The increasing <coughs> proliferation of standards increases the strategic relevance of standards to a company's business. And it's also important to respond to increased political and regulatory focus on standards. And there can also be a consequence of failing to meet uh, and comply with standards, so it is worth getting involved to help determine where the bar is set for compliance if that's going to touch your business. The European Commission... The European Commission recognises these benefits, but has become increasingly aware that how standards are set and used can distort competition. The starting point is the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, which sets out two fundamental competitional prohibitions. Article 101 prohibits agreements that prevent, restrict or distort competition, and Article 102 prevents those with a dominant position on a relevant market from abusing their market power. The ultimate aim is to protect consumers from harm, such as higher prices or less choice. Standard setting is not without competitional risks, therefore, because it often involves agreements between competitors. It could be used as a forum to exchange competitively sensitive information, and it could even facilitate uh, cartel activities such as price fixing or market sharing. The process could discriminate against or even exclude certain um, players in the market or competing technologies. And if access to the standard becomes essential for all market players, the terms on which access is granted can restrict competition. However, standard setting will not normally restrict competition if participation is open and unrestricted. So all the key stakeholders can get involved. Objective criteria are used to determine which solution will form the basis of the standard. And the voting and membership rules are fair as well. The procedure for adopting the standard must be transparent and um, 
any know-how that or, or um, technological um, information that's required to enable parties to use the standard must be shared freely. Um, there is no obligation to comply or to refrain from developing an alternative standard or to boycott other solutions. And, very significantly, access to the standard is granted on fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory terms. Now, there has been significant focus on technology standards, and this is partly because of the tension that's seen to exist between competition law, which seeks to encourage innovation through open rivalry, and intellectual property rights, which confer legal monopolies as a reward for innovation. Given the value of the commercial issues at stake, parties seem increasingly willing to litigate over standard essential patented technology. There has been an increased focus by the European Commission generally on ICT, culminating in its digital agenda. Um, and, and since the European Commission's decision in 2004 in Microsoft, there has been a steady stream of merger cases and um, competition law cases involving technology. And so the European Commission's experience in this area has grown. We've also seen a focus on sectors where patents are prominent, and the strategic use of patents is now clearly a Commission priority. The Commission regards each standard essential patent as a separate technology market, and therefore the holder of a standard essential patent has a monopoly and a special responsibility under competition law not to use its market power abusively. In fast-moving technology markets, serious competition harm can occur quickly, and so the Commission is increasingly proactive in intervening. So, in closing, I've, I've put up there some areas of focus, but for the sake of time, I just want to draw out two particular, two particular points. Um, the Commission views standardisation as a key way to enable further techno technological innovation and has placed standards at the heart of its strategy for driving growth in technology markets. And the Commission has also made clear that technology standards remain high on its agenda for competition law enforcement. And so um, I'll hand over now to Elisabetta, who will talk us through some of the recent case law which illustrates how these issues have played out in practice. Thank you. Hi. I'm going to um, <clears throat> try and foreshorten my talk a little bit um, to, um, to, uh, to speed up my talk um, and get us back on track on time. So um, there are uh, three types of standard setting. Um, there's the creation of a de facto standard, the adoption of a standard by industry standard setting organisation, I'm going to call them SSOs from now on, and um, government international mandated standards compelling all market participants to comply. Um, I think it's quite important to look, um, identify the difference between general standards and essential standards, and competition law is really focusing on essential standards, and these are standards which become the industry norm which competitors and customers must use in order to access or interoperate with a particular technology. The holder of an essential standard is um, in a dominant position, as Rachel mentioned, and um, the key competition issues raised by the creation of an essential standard are collective boycott, where um, competitors get together and boycott a, another competitor's technology, um, abuse of dominance by the exclusion of um, competitors, 
um, and the exploitation of dominant position, usually by um, charging excessive royalties. I've got a quote there that you can read at your leisure. The de facto standard, um, an example of, of exclusion of competitors via de facto standards is the Thomson Reuters case. This is where Thomson Reuters allegedly excluded competitors by, by preventing mapping of its RICs to competitor products. Now, RICs are um, codes developed by Thomson Reuters to, for use in the financial, by financial institutions to identify securities and their trading locations in order to retrieve Thomson Reuters real-time data feeds. Um, Thomson Reuters entered into commitments with the European Commission on the 12th, uh, 20th of December 2012, allowing use of RICs for mapping um, for a fee. Um, an alternative solution um, to, to this was proposed in 2010 by the New York Stock Exchange um, uh, and Euronext, um, who agreed with Bloomberg to distribute Bloomberg's open symbology um, along with the exchange's standard security identifiers for New York Stock Exchange listed companies through all of its data products globally. Um, this was uh, distributed free of charge, but um, had they charged a reasonable fee, that may, may well have um, been competition compliant as well. Okay. So um, another case... Um, uh, involving the exploitation of a dominant position is the Standard & Poor's case. Um, Standard & Poor's was a, is a monopoly creator and distributor of US ISINs. Standard & Poor's allegedly charged um, unfairly high prices for the use of and distribution of these ISINs to financial institutions within the EEA um, in breach of their uh, dominant position. Um, ISINs are essential international key identifiers for interbank communication, clearing and settlement and they're used by, by financial institutions to manage securities in their portfolio. Now, I'm not going to talk about talk to the rest of the slide because I think it's all pretty evident there, so you can look through um, at your leisure. Effectively, um, because of the ISO recovery principle, um, they weren't allowed to um, charge in, uh, indirect users any fee at all, and um, they bundled it, the, the, um, the, the fee of the ISINs with data other data, um, and that was uh, regarded as excessive as well. Um, the commitments are, are all there for you to read at your leisure. So the standard-setting process is a crucible of ideas and innovation out of which future monopolists are created willingly. Um, and so it's very important that during this process that... Um, Competitors are not excluded, as Rachel mentioned, and she mentioned some of the, the, the key um, tenants that, that need to be in, in, in place to stop um, exclusion of competitors. Another way in which um, people can abuse this process is by not disclosing all their essential patents during the standard-setting process. This is called a patent ambush. Um, Rambus, in 2007, was a, um, accused by the European Commission of allegedly... Um, acting in bad faith during the DRAM standard-setting process by concealing to JEDEC, a US standard-setting organisation, that it held patents relevant to the DRAM standard until after the standard had been adopted. 
This means that it was able to avoid making any commitment to license the standard essential patents on fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory terms, which usually happens at the standard-setting process, and therefore was able to charge uh, an excessive royalty at the end. Um, so the European Commission re regarded that it had um, charged excessive prices for the use of its patent and had abused the standard-setting process. Rambus entered into commitments to um, cap its royalty, royalty fees going forwards. So the European Commission um, really requires standard-setting organisations to adopt a clear and balanced IPR policy um, which require good faith disclosure by the participants, participants of their IPR, which may be essential to the implementation. Um, so, as we said, standard-setting organisations should um, require a FRAN commitment from anybody who um, has a standard essential patent that's going to be adopted in that standard. However... Once they've made that commitment, there's no requirement of the SSO to police the, the FRAN fulfilment, and that's up to the individual companies themselves. They must self-assess. And the reason um, the, the FRAN commitment, which is fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory licensing, is, um, is required is to stop discriminatory licensing, refusal to license, charging excessive royalty fees, and the use of injunctions to prevent competitors using the technology covered by the set. So an example of a breach of a, a potential breach of a FRAN commitment is um, the Samsung case. Um, on the 21st of December 2012, the European Commission sent a statement of objections to Samsung for having sought injunctions in a number of member states against competing mobile device makers, um, alleging that they had infringed certain of its wireless um, standard essential patents. The concern here is that standard essential patent holders um, may not offer FRAN terms to competitors and then use injunctions to prohibit uh, competing technologies from emerging on the market. Samsung has withdrawn its injunctions, um, um, and yet the investigation is still ongoing. So that's um, a, you know, a concerning outcome, really, at the moment. Similarly, Qualcomm was... Um, investigated by the European Commission for charging excessive prices. In 2007, the European Commission opened an investigation into um, Qualcomm for charging excessive royalties for its patented technology after it became an essential part of the um, European 3G standard. However, in this case, the European Clo Commission closed its investigation in 2009 after all complainants withdrew their complaints. So it may not be, in effect, that there is any... Um, you know, any excessive royalties being charged at all. But um, you can see how this could be costly for your, your companies nonetheless. Lastly, um, standards can be created through government or international mandated standards, and I've just got two examples here. Um, the first is the European Standardisation Regulation, which was adopted on the 4th of October, and the second is the UK government's proposal to mandate open royalty-free standards for ICT public procurement in the UK. And we could talk at length about both of them, but I'm going to leave the floor to Cassie now. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I'm going to talk in a focus in, in a little more detail, on a particular case which concerns the well-established essential standard for 3G UMTS technology. And that is a case that's coming to trial 
in, um, if all goes well, in July in the High Court of this year between IPCOM, um, a non-practicing entity, which bought Bosch's portfolio of um, mobile phone patents, mobile technology patents. This contained a number of patents on mobile phone technology. Uh, this was technology that had been declared by Bosch as essential to the 3G standard. And ICOM bought that patent portfolio from Bosch. IPCOM's business essentially as a non-practicing entity is to obtain value from that portfolio by entering into licenses with primarily handset manufacturers, either by way of negotiation, ultimately, of course, by way of litigation. And they're engaged worldwide in litigation at the moment in the UK, in the US, in Germany, and in Japan. And in the UK in particular, there are proceedings currently between IPCOM and um, Nokia and HTC. One patent uh, owned by IPCOM concerning RATCH access has been upheld as valid and infringed by the High Court, by the Patents Court, and it is also a standard essential patent. So they are in the unusual position of actually holding a patent that has been proven to be valid and infringed uh, and standard essential. And rather than address their application for an injunction, the court decided, uh, with the um, eventual agreement of all the parties, that it would order a trial of what the FRAND terms for licensing of that particular patent should be. And that's what's going to be tried in July. So just by way of background, um, UMTS 3G is the standard administered in Europe by ETSI, uh, the European Telecom Standard Institute. Um, and there are some, just some background details on ETSI set out on that slide. ETSI has an IPR policy to which all, it mem all its members sign up. This is the standard way with these well-established uh, standard-setting organizations. All of its members join. They, stand up to, they sign up to this IPR policy. The IPR policy defines what is an essential uh, piece of technology, a, an essential patent. And that's set out in detail on the slide. But basically, <coughs> essential technology uh, an essential IPR relates to technology which it's necessary to use in order to operate in line with the standard, in order to operate your handset so that it can communicate with other 3G phones. Um, so it's, as you can see, it's pretty much essential uh, to have that technology if you are going to operate in that market. And what does having essential IPR mean? Um, how does the ETSIR ETSI IPR policy work. The process essentially is two-stage. Our patent holders, IPR holders, who have um, essential IPR, which is decide the IPR, which is technology, IPR for technology, which is incorporated into the standard, have to declare at an early stage their essential IPR. Once it has been declared to ETSI, the standard-setting organisation, they then have to give a FRAND undertaking, an irrevocable undertaking in writing that, that the technology holder, the patent holder, will grant licences to that IPR on FRAND terms. How is the FRAND undertaking enforced? Well, it's not enforced by the standard-setting organisation. It's not enforced by ETSI. It is supposed to be enforced by the parties, by negotiation between themselves. But, of course, ultimately, it will be the courts who enforce uh, that FRAND obligation if necessary. 
Now, what is the legal source of the Frand obligation? That might seem a bit of an esoteric question, but it is relevant both to what the content of the obligation should be and is, and how it is to be, for, to be enforced. As I've explained, you start with your declaration to Etsy under the Etsy IPR policy. The Etsy IPR policy, which is great for uh, us English lawyers, is governed by the French law of contract, um, which is, as I, 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 can, I can swear, a pretty impenetrable. Arguably, uh, it would be a breach of contract for a member to violate the policy. But um, as has also been explained by Rachel and Elisabetta, the holder of a standard essential patent is likely to be held to be in a dominant position when it comes to the supply of the, uh, the license rights to, that, uh, to use that technology. And arguably, it is an abuse of that dominant position not to give FRAND terms. Now, the added uh, complication in the IPCOM case is that it was, as I said earlier, Bosch who developed the technology uh, on which the standard essential patents, uh, to which the standard essential patents relate, and it is Bosch who made declarations to Etsy at the relevant time, not IPCOM who subsequently acquired that patent portfolio from Bosch. But IPCOM did, uh, in 2009, make various declarations, public declarations to the European Commission. Uh, public declarations, in effect, to say that they held themselves to be bound by the same FRAND undertakings as had already been given by Bosch. So, in theory, the European Commission could pursue IPCOM if it considered that they weren't complying um, or that they were abusing their dominant position under Article 102 of the treaty. As I've already said, Etsy does not determine what is FRAND. Neither does it police the giving of FRAND terms to, for a license to essential uh, patents. But the Etsy IPR policy does give some guidance on what FRAND seeks to achieve. Um, essentially, what they say it's seeking to achieve is to maintain a balance between the success of the standard through access by third parties to the standard essential patents and to the technology, balanced against the rights of the patent holder. And it is recognised that the patent holder must be adequately and fairly rewarded for the use of those IPRs. Well, it's a very fine-sounding sentiment, but how that balance is to be struck is incredibly difficult to determine. Um, just in, in passing, it's important as well to uh, be aware of the ambit of the FRAND obligation. Some guidance on this has been given in the German courts, um, and they essentially say in this uh, Orange Book Standard case that the FRAND obligation imposes certain obligations on the licensee as well as on the licensor. You can't just use standard essential technology with impunity. You have to essentially engage in reasonable negotiations which make with the, uh, the patent holder um, accept reasonable offers, act as a reasonable licensee. And that may go quite far, as you can see from some of the details that were set out in that German case. So the million-dollar question is, what does FRAND mean? And we hope that will be addressed by the High Court. And there are a number of arguments, a number of ways you can approach this question. Does FRAND, fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory, just mean terms that are not abusive? 
not abusive as um, considered under the case law, European law, English law, case law on Article 102, the Chapter 2 prohibition. So that, in essence, a licensee can hold out for their most, a licensor, apologise, can hold out for the most favourable terms as long as those terms don't tip over into abuse. Another interesting point um, that uh, Elisabetta raised is what is the role of injunctions? Because when, uh, if you're negotiating licenses for non-standard essential patents in the wild, uh, often what you'll have regard to is the hold-up value of those patents. In negotiations, a licensee will, among other things, take a view on the strength of a portfolio. How likely is that portfolio to contain uh, patents that will be proved to be valid, that will be proved to be infringed? How likely is the licensor uh, to be able to get an injunction out against me and to effectively stop me using the technology I need to use. But if uh, obtaining an injunction for a standard essential patent is anti-competitive, as Elisabetta explained, might be the Commission's view in the Samsung negotiation, how do you go about valuing the IPR if it has effectively no hold-up value? Well, there are some arguments that have emerged in um, the literature in, on uh, standard essential patents. There's the argument that the FRAN terms should reflect hypothetical commercial negotiations between a willing licensor and a willing licensee. Well, again, that sounds very good, but what does one go to to determine what would be the result of such hypothetical negotiations? The sort of evidence one might be looking at commercial comparators, licenses, public statements by IPR holders as to where they will start in giving a license for their patent portfolio. Do issues such as the conduct of the potential licensee um, reduce the value if the potential licensee has not uh, entered into bona fide negotiations? Should some discount be made or some increase to the rate be made to uh, reflect that? Should some discount to the rate be made if you are entering into an early license? Uh, other more theoretical arguments that have been doing the rounds are arguments about royalty stacking and cumulative royalty rates. Um, it's been argued that one should pay no more than a proportionate share of a reasonable royalty. And that a it's been argued that a cumulative royalty for, um, for example, for 3G standards should be no more than um, a single uh, percentage of the cost of a mobile handset and that the owners of the IPR can only get a reasonable proportion of that percentage cumulative royalty. And then there's the uh, arguments about uh, where the economists start making a huge amount of money um, and the experts start making a huge amount of money. What's the technical contribution of the patent to the standard? What would have been the ex-ante rate for the technology, that is the value of the technology before it was incorporated into a standard? But as we've already seen, that cuts across um, the argument that an IPR holder should be given some reward for the fact that the technology was chosen as the best technology for the particular standard. Terms also have to be non-discriminatory, but that does not mean, as we all know, that all licensees have to be offered the same rate. They're not all in the same position. The most obvious difference is that often we find the IPR holders are also active in the particular market. They may also be uh, mobile phone manufacturers and they are most likely to enter into cross licenses with similarly positioned licensees. Difficulties arise in particular with the position of non-practicing entities where they have no cross license to offer and that's where we come back to the IPCOM case. 
So there are lots of interesting and difficult questions for the court to grapple with in July. Uh, we hope that the judgment uh, in the case will be likely to set at least some principles that will have real implications for the technology world, both for patent holders and those who need access to the technology to carry on their businesses. And we hope that some guidance will be given and some principles will be laid down that will have application beyond the specific context of 3G and UMTS and wherever standards are becoming more and more important in the business world. Thanks very much, Cassie. And can everyone, yep. everyone can hear? So thank you, uh, thank you, Callum. I think what I what I find most fascinating about the space, um, about the world that I work in, is just how rapidly user consciousness of these issues um, has evolved. In what, when you really think about it, is quite a short uh, is quite a short space of time. So when I first began at Yahoo, in 2006, uh, my role literally didn't exist, and uh, with only some notable exceptions, and Google's probably uh, one of them. That was the case for many large online businesses, and I'd certainly include Facebook in that, even back in 2006. But I remember very early uh, along those lines, you know, one of our very patient engineers in Sunnyvale in, at, at our headquarters explaining to me what an IP address was. And I also remember having to look up Wikipedia because I didn't really know what a cookie did. I had a bit of an idea, um, but I, there was really no one locally who could sort of, who could convey what, you know, was fairly critical information. So, you know, against that backdrop, you know, how things have, have changed and remarkably so. And perhaps there's no real sort of better illustration of that, I think, than the excruciatingly uh, public backlash that, uh, that we saw not even a month ago against Instagram, uh, when it flagged proposed changes to its terms of use that would allow it a much wider discretion over, the, uh, over its use of photos that uh, its very engaged uh, user base uh, uploaded uh, to its community. And so, uh, you know, that backlash led very quickly to Instagram issuing a, a corrective statement to the effect that you know, it didn't intend uh, what people thought it did and apologising for the confusion. Um, you know, the whether the basis for that confusion was valid or not is another question. Um, but you know, the key point for me here is just how engaged and how passionate these user communities are. So you know, whether that's Facebook, whether it's Instagrams, you know, Flickrs, uh, just to put a plug in, you know, Pinterests, you name it. Uh, and how intense um, that, that intense activism, I think, uh, is in many respects a, a, a function, if you like, of the changing way that personal data is being used by online businesses in the space that, um, that I operate in. Um, and the increasing savviness about privacy issues um, that are shown by these communities. Um, in terms of the changing way that personal data is being used by, by companies, which of course is the focus of of this presentation, I think it's fair to say that for many websites, for most websites, uh, the key trend is an increasing emphasis on personalization uh, of the user experience across multiple platforms. So what I mean by that is across desktop, mobile and, and tablet. Um, and that's in respect of both content and in respect of advertising. Now, by personalising, what I really mean is optimising and customising what the user sees based on what websites know about what a user is interested in, um, but also what they can guess based on what they know. 
and again, that's across all tab across all platforms, so desktop, uh, mobile, and and tablet. Um, and as Callum will describe, you know, in more detail uh, shortly, you know, what constitutes personal data in this context, and therefore is is regulated, you know, is very much a live a live discussion. Um, now, since most websites are ad-supported, it's in everybody's interests, including users, uh, to ensure that advertising is relevant and interesting. Um, the, the more interesting, which is pretty obvious. I mean, the more interesting and customised an ad, the more likely a user is to engage with it. The higher the click-through rate, the more revenue flows back to publishers. Um, you know, it's it's a critical uh, element of. Um, of most companies' online business models, this idea of relevance and customization and being interesting. Um, so since we're looking at you know, some of the challenges presented by law and by policy to these trends, it probably makes sense just to focus at a, a high level on one of the core technologies that, that underpins the technology uh, behind personalization, and that is, and that is cookies. Um, and also at the impact of other privacy laws on those operating in the ecosystem that, that my company is part of. Um, but before we do that, just uh, before we do that, there are just there, just to talk quickly about a number of methods that uh, websites use to personalise the user experience. And generally, you know, there are a number of different ways of doing that. But generally, for the most part, there are two primary data inputs that that are used, depending on which part of the ecosystem you, uh, you operate in. Now, the first one is declared data. Data, I should say, or data. I've been living here long enough, I should get that right. Uh, you know, and generally, you know, this refers to information that users actively volunteer. Um, you know, so for instance, your age, your postal code, um, things that you like, and in that respect, you know, Facebook is a great example of leveraging that input um, as a mechanism for, for surfacing advertising and content. You know, these are all things that users tell websites. So like I say, declared data. Now generally, uh, but not always, but generally, you need to be a, a registered user of a website uh, in order to communicate that information with, with a site. The other primary input for customization that websites use is what we call observed data or inferred data. Now that's where websites customize a user's experience over time, not so much on uh, the basis of what the user might have actively volunteered, um, but rather what the website has inferred about that user's interests based on uh, what, the, what, what that website has observed about that user's activity. So what do I mean by that? I'm talking about links that you click on or pages that you visit or, you know, if you're like some companies, searches that you, that you conduct. Information that the, websites, that the website observes about your activity, but which you don't necessarily declare. And in a mobile context, that could, you know, provided that you've given your express consent for its use, uh, include location data also. So, you know, this is the primary reason why, you know, my Amazon uh, homepage, you know, probably looks very different to, to Callum's. Um, you know, and it's also how ad networks work as well, because it's through the use of cookies that ad networks that operate across multiple websites can... Um, can, form a, can form a picture of uh, the types of interests that might uh, be relevant to you based on the pages that, of, that, that you visited, based on that browsing history. Um, so like I say, this obviously raises questions about when, uh, when data is personal data and therefore regulated um, under EU data protection laws, and, and if it is, you know, how that framework would apply um, to these kinds of business models. And um, I think that's something Callum's going to speak to. So 
This is a great topic for today's overarching theme about technology bumping into regulation. Um, what Dustin's just described is technological advancement. Hopefully, we would all think to consumer benefit. Um, but that's not enough for the regulators who see it as something which should be controlled. Um, and we see that control, I think, on a legal uh, sort of law, uh, legislative level, rather, uh, in four ways. Um, through some old laws that we already have, through some new laws that we've just got, and through a couple of um, legislative uh, movements that, that are coming. If we start with the old, I mean, I think we're, we're probably looking at kind of old wine into new bottles rather than new wine into old. When we think about the, the Data Protection Directive and, and the Act um, that it spawned in the UK. Now, if you think that the Data Protection Directive came out in 95 and the Act in 98, clearly when they were pulled together, there was no contemplation of the technologies that we're talking about or indeed the business uses that are being made of those nowadays. However, uh, that, that's the framework within which we operate. So to, to Dustin's question, is this kind of profiling data personal data? Let's have a look at the directive and the act. I've put both the definitions up uh, on the screen. I mean, I think from the directive, you can take that if a natural person's identifiable directly or indirectly from the data, then the data is going to be personal data. Similarly, um, in the UK under the act, if you can identify a living person, um, it's a little bit better than uh, the dead people who may be... Uh, I'm not sure if a natural person is a dead person or a live person, but let's leave that. Um, in, in the UK, if you're living and you can be identified from the data, then again, that data will be personal data. What does that mean for the kind of business operations that we're talking about? I think the answer is it becomes quite difficult to argue that the majority of personalization or profiling work doesn't somehow involve using data that is personal data, particularly if this is in a situation where the relationship is also one where the party giving you the data is a customer. Um, the way you can marry data sets in the UK under the Data Protection Act means that the data you already hold plus this data will, if you like, taint the personalization data to become personal data. What does that mean? Well, it means that all this kind of personalizing activity starts to fall down the rabbit hole um, in that it becomes necessary to be compliant with the, the Act in the UK when you're, you're carrying out this type of processing. So that means you've got to be doing processing on legitimate grounds. You've got to have a conditions satisfied under the Act for that processing. And commonly, we look to a couple of conditions for most processing, that being consent, or that the processing is necessary for the provision of a service that's been requested. Now, I think it's a little bit difficult to push profiling under the second of those. Um, it may be necessary to your business to carry out some profiling, but it's highly unlikely that it's necessary to the individual, or they would see it that way, that you profile them. And consequently, we tend to fall back in consent as students of the Act will know, helpfully, consent's not defined in the Data Protection Act. So we go back to the directive where we get freely given, specific and informed being what's required for consent. So that takes us to a place where if we're profiling, that's the level of consent we should be getting from the, uh, the data subjects if we're using their information in this way. And of course, that's only the start. Once we fall under the regime of the Act, all the other obligations of the Act will comply to that processing. So fair processing, we need to be transparent. We should only be holding the data for the purpose that we've said we will and for so long as we need it. We need to set ourselves up as a business in a way that we can respond to data subjects when they come to us and ask what we're doing with that data and ask us to stop doing it. And then if you're using sensitive personal data, shorthanding kind of lifestyle data uh, for any of this profiling, you're actually going to have to go to a higher level of consent and have explicit consent. All of which I think is probably not in the contemplation of lots of businesses as they go down the route of profiling, thinking this is a useful thing to have. 
So we've regulation on the content of the information itself. We've also recently seen a change in law which affects the means of how that information is gathered. Dustin's talked about cookies. And we've seen through the, uh, the change to the e-privacy directive, a change in the UK to our privacy and electronic communication regulations. Um, this came in in May, but kick-started properly May 2012 uh, of being live. <coughs> and shorthanding again the requirement of, of the new regulation. Um, effectively, you shouldn't be using cookies or similar technologies to capture information about your users unless those are necessary for a service that's been requested or the user has given consent to. And that consent, again, is where the user fully understands what the cookie is going to be used for. And that kind of flips us into a question of context, I think. Um, when we think about how that consent can be gathered, uh, you have to think about the relationship between you as a business and the user. Is it you that's gathering the information through the use of the cookie, or is it somebody else who's using your website to do it? And if it's the latter, it becomes much more difficult to think about how you collect that consent. In a one-to-one -one situation with your own consumer, I think it's easier. You can explain to them, hopefully, what's happening. Um, why that's relevant? Well, we, we, although the law has been, as I say, enforced since May last year, even now we're starting to see the Information Commissioner take some action in this area. Uh, December, just before the turn of the year, the Commissioner released the first report on the activities that they'd undertaken. The interesting points from me in that were they re-clarified the, the line that they would take in enforcement where they're now writing to websites, they're expecting answers, they're expecting changes if you haven't got answers, and if those changes aren't forthcoming, they're, they're telling us that they will take regulatory action. Equally interestingly, they're saying that they're referring websites that aren't UK-based but are EU-based to the local regulator in the EU. So we're starting to see some activity in this space. It starts to have a relevance. We mentioned changes coming not just from law, but also from policy. So um, late 2011 saw uh, uh, the government have an idea. Um, I'm never quite sure if that's an oxymoronic statement or not, but let's move on. Um, the government came up with the concept of my data. Um, and, and what's behind my data is allowing consumers to access personal data that's held about them, primarily about their transaction history or their consumption in a way that they can take that data from the person holding it and transfer it to a separate source. Um, that in itself doesn't sound like a bad idea, and the government's kind of focused this on several industries, uh, primarily energy industries, banking industries, and telecoms. The idea being that consumers hopefully will be able to have better choice, that business will become more competitive as they compete for those consumers who can shift more readily. Um, it's not been left there, however. Just before the turn of the year, the government's come out again saying, we quite like this idea, and what we think we're going to do is, um, if not quite build the gun and fire, we will build the gun. We'll introduce regulations that will allow us to extend my data into other areas if we want to, and equally in the areas that we're already using it, we'll formalise it if people aren't listening to what we want through the voluntary programme. And what's very interesting to me is when they think about some of the areas that they will perhaps formalise or require to be part of a My Data programme, they've expressly considered internet pages visited, products viewed when logged into an account, regardless of purchasing, and internet history downloads and bandwidth use, all of which I think kind of falls into the criterion of profiling information. So whilst it's not there, you can see the road to regulation of use of this profiling data coming directly through my data. Um, 
we're meant to be getting the My Data regulation in, in uh, mid-2014, as I say, so let's see where that goes. The kind of last area of potential new regulation uh, in a sort of Tolkien-esque fashion uh, is the data protection regulation, one, one law to rule them all. Um, the, the, those of you who have any familiarity with the regulation will know that it, it came out uh, in January of last year. Um, actually, there was a sneak peek in December uh, and a worrying amount of changes from that sneak peek to the one that was released in January, maybe suggesting the amount of flux that's going on with this. All 120 pages of the new data protection regulation on its way. When will this impact? When will it hit? Uh, Possibly uh, later on this, this year, particularly driven by, uh, and the quotes from them, the EU's own press release, the, the desire to achieve a political agreement of the data protection reform by the end of the Irish presidency. Uh, cynics might say that Ireland, with its interest in lots of uh, data-rich companies being based there, have a real driver to make this happen. Regardless of whether or not that's the case, we will see change happening on this, I think, um, during the course of the year. And where this impacts particularly in what we're thinking about on personalization and personal data is that the definitions that are changing under what's proposed in the regulation. Um, we're seeing the definition of personal data pushed out from information which identifies people, as I mentioned, to information which simply distinguishes somebody. So at the same time as that barrier is falling or spreading, Consent and the definition of consent is being hardened to require an explicit consent for processing um, under the regulation. So we find ourselves in a place where, again, the activities that we're thinking about are likely to be, to be uh, regulated more closely. And I think there's some specific um, parts of the regulation directly aimed at this. Uh, yep, so I'll talk about uh, a few of those in the context of um, business models that involve personalization and customization because that's kind of what we're talking about um, here. I mean, I'll just talk quickly about them because, I mean, this whole area, as Callum kind of hinted at, really could be a presentation in and of itself. But in terms of profiling, you know, what, what does that mean? I mean, like all other um, uh, critical uh, pieces of... Um, like, like some other critical pieces of the, of the regulation, it's helpfully not defined, um, or at least not expressly, but Article 20 effectively says that it's automated processing of certain characteristics um, which produce either legal effects or which significantly affect a person. Um, you know, and so the key question as I see it, at least from, from where I see it, is, you know, is this kind, is customising a, a user's experience, um, could that ever be considered profiling? The, the prevailing view, at least when the regulation was first published, was, well, no, not really. Um, you know, it really ought not to apply to interest-based advertising or the type of customization that you see on sites like, you know, I'll use the Amazon example again. After all, you know, it's hard to see how a, like a book recommendation or a DVD suggestion, um, you know, as, as kind of confronting as I might find them, um, you know, it might produce a, a legal effect or significantly affect me as a, as a natural person. Um, but the Libe report, which is the, the report of the parliamentary committee that um, has been looking at the regulation, uh, advocates expanding or widening the scope of what would be covered because it takes away the requirement that um, uh, profiling must significantly, or that the processing must significantly affect an individual to be considered profiling. Instead, it suggests that it should cover any automated processing 
intended to evaluate personal aspects, including preferences or behaviour. Now, I think any profiling that produces a legal effect or significantly affects an individual has been, or at least the, the suggestion of the Libe report is that that be prohibited. And I don't think that that's something that many ad networks or commercial enterprises in, um, or many online commercial enterprises would, uh, would quibble with. Um, but this new definition of profiling, as it's uh, as recommended, is broad, and profiling would be permissible only uh, in a narrow range of situations, including where an individual had given consent. Um, and so, when you when you sit that alongside this requirement, as Callum was just talking about, that consent to be valid must be explicit. You can understand how many websites and third-party ad networks are you know, rightly concerned as to how this might impact um, their operations and their business models. Now, the second uh, point I just want to touch on quickly is the, this idea of uh, leg legitimate interests. Now, as you know, the current text preserves for the most part this, uh, the, the various bases for showing that your processing is lawful. If you're, if you're an online company, you have to show a number of different things, but one of them is that your processing is lawful. And the, the regulation preserves most of those um, bases. Um, and one of those, of course, is where you're pursuing a legitimate interest. And many companies have, as a matter of practice, relied on this in circumstances where getting consent has, at least from a practical perspective, been uh, challenging to or impractical to obtain. The Libay recommendations would uh, limit where you can rely on this as a basis for processing. And it would effectively become a condition of last resort. So again, if you take that limitation and you sit it alongside the expanded definition of what constitutes personal data, so this idea that it should include online identifiers like an IP address or a cookie ID, you have online businesses and third-party ad networks in particular potentially facing a very new set of challenges. Just finally, on territorial reach, um, uh, the key point here is the new regulation uh, will now explicitly apply to those websites established outside the EU that monitor the activities of EU residents. Um, and under the LIBE re recommendations, coming back to that report again, that would include profiling. So, you know, some of the practical challenges there for sites outside the EU um, who have users from all over the world and not just the EU is, you know, what, what standards do you apply? Do you apply the same standards to all visitors? Do you apply some standards to some visitors? Do you apply the, the highest or the lowest common denominator, depending on which way you look at it? Um, these, are all, these are all challenges that the, uh, the, dra the draft regulation uh, presents. Um, but moving on then from, from you know, the possible challenges of this new law to the way in which uh, businesses have, um, have responded to those presented under the existing one. And, you know, again, the, the point that Callum made, you know, one of the big challenges that we face is applying 1995 principles to emerging business models. Um, you know, how do you take the obligation to ensure your processing is fair, um, to ensure that you offer users a right to object and kind of try and fit it within the framework of the, um, and try and apply that to business models um, that are out there today. Um, and how do you do that in an environment where regulators, um, either themselves or collectively through bodies like the Article 29 Working Party, are you know, continuing to evolve their own interpretations of how, um, how those principles should apply to these new technologies and business models? Um, 
you know, again, I think there's a whole presentation you could give on that, but, you know, just a couple of brief observations. The first one is in relation to privacy policies. Um, and, you know, and my, my personal view on this is that generally, not always, but generally, um, they are becoming more rather than less user-friendly and accessible. And there's a fairly pragmatic reason for that, and that is that, um, a fairly obvious reason for that, and that is it's through a privacy policy that you set user expectations about how their information will be used. And the reason that's critical is that for all websites, uh, user trust is absolutely critical. If you don't have that, you don't have a business. And if you do something that your users don't expect, they go somewhere else, and they typically complain. And uh, with complaints, uh, reg um, you know, uh, knocks on the door from regulators tend to follow soon thereafter. So um, like I say, I think the, the prevailing trend is towards privacy policies becoming more rather than less uh, comprehensible and, and user-friendly. Um, when it comes to third-party ad serving, uh, getting consent can, be, uh, can often present a practical challenge for some companies, uh, particularly in jurisdictions where, like I said, the legitimate interest basis might not be available. Um, and that's where self-regulatory frameworks like the, uh, the IAB's online code of practice, uh, which apply to third-party net ad networks, can uh, play an important role in establishing best practices around transparency, notice and choice, which complement the existing obligations that those companies have under the, the Data Protection Directive. Um, now, that ad choices icon you, you see on the slide, and most of you have probably seen that from time to time in, in ads that um, have been displayed to you on websites that you go to, um, that's the principal mechanism for participants in the IAB code of practice to uh, provide that transparency and choice that I was talking about. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the framework is an important platform for users to opt out or object to the use of their data for, for interest-based advertising purposes. And if you click that icon, it takes you through to a, a general information page which explains who served the ad, what inputs were used um, in order to determine that that ad was the one for you. And then importantly, from a right to object perspective, it then links through to a page, a centralised location from which you can opt out of um, receiving BT ads from any or all of the companies um, who participate in that uh, in that program. So they're just a couple of examples, but they demonstrate you know, how business practices have uh, evolved to meet the challenges of the, of the, uh, the directive. Um, and then in terms of you know, how businesses are responding to the challenges of the, the e-privacy directive, I'll let you. Um... Yeah, so um, we are seeing websites adapting to, to um, comply with what was required under the, the new PECA regulations. Um, for those of you who followed this story, <clears throat> you, you'll remember the uh, fantastic last-minute change of mind by the Information Commissioner. Uh, the day before the law went live, we were told that you could have implied consent rather than express consent to the use of cookies, which is really good generally, but not really good if you were one of the proactive companies who'd built a solution in the run-up to the law going live. Um, leaving that aside, what we are seeing is um, activity-based now consents um, where that activity is interpreted as a, as a consent to the use of cookies. So I've got the FT up here. This is what you see when you go on. If you continue to use the website, this drops away um, and you're consenting to the FT using cookies. Uh, we've seen um, what, what we've perhaps democratically or politically called more innovative solutions here. Um, the likes of BT, where you get a similar um, floating window when you open up the site for the first time, and I think you get it for 30 seconds, um, and it lets you click on it if you can catch it, and if you can't, then you've consented. 
Um, I, I, I'm not going to comment on that any further. Um, we've also seen uh, some, some solutions, I think, that tackling the third party issue, Dustin. Uh, yeah, so the, the Evadon solution, I'm not sure if uh, many of you, any of you have seen that. Um, we don't have a screenshot, but um, it's one of the um, so-called cookie consent tools that are out there in the marketplace produced by third parties. Um, this one, in a way, is kind of, it's a variation on the window shade implementation that, that Callum was talking about, except that the window shade, it's a little bit more static, so you don't have to chase it around the screen. Um, but it's unavoidable. It appears at the bottom of, um, of the page view. Um, but where this one uh, differs from most window shades is that it surfaces, you know, not just what cookies are being used on that particular website, but it also gives some visibility into uh, third parties that may be operating on that site um, as well. So, you know, the providers of analytics services, for example, or um, third party ad networks. And they also include a link to where you can go to um, to opt out of those third parties from using uh, your clickstream information for those for those purposes. Um, uh, there's a reference there to do not track. Now that's uh, that's two separate presentations actually, um, but it's it's a, it's a, it's a conversation that began in the U.S. quite independently of um, the uh, the 2009 changes to the e-privacy directive, um, but it was seized on here in Europe by by some as a possible way at cross industry uh, kind of solution to this consent deliver. Um, and for those of you who don't know, just like a high level overview, it's a it's a browser-based solution, and the basic idea is that um, you know when you, if you've got it switched on, then in addition to all of the other information that your browser sends to a website when you request that web page to view on your screen, it also tells that website whether or not you have turned Do Not Track on uh, or, or not. Um, I think the key takeaway, you know, for the purposes of this presentation, is that. Um, this will be an ongoing conversation and the, the discussion of continuing debate uh, because, and there, I mean, there are a couple of reasons for that, but firstly, no one can really, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there isn't consensus at the moment on what the track part of do not track should mean. And by that, what I mean is, you know, for example, does it mean tracking for BT or does it mean more what we would, you know, what you might call more innocuous types of activity like uh, analytic services? Um, and then secondly, of course, Microsoft's uh, uh, decision to switch DNT on by default um, in the newest release of Internet Explorer 10 uh, caused some consternation across the online uh, advertising ecosystem as well. Um, so uh, just, just to quickly wrap up, I mean, with the exception of DNT, perhaps, um, you know, this, this question of third parties and how they get consent um, in the context of the business models they have is still very much a... Um, a, a a subject of uh, concern and, and debate. So other open questions. Um, it's easy to talk about responses when you've got the law already, as we have with the Data Protection Act and the cookie regulation. Um, we don't have law in my data yet, but it's live. This program is moving. Um, I talked about it touching on energy, telecoms and banking and payment sectors. Hopefully, if you're in those sectors, you're already engaged with this. If you're not in those sectors, um, you should think about engaging with the discussion. The government has said if they're going to expand it outside of those, they will come out and consult. I think um, you know, anybody that's capturing information in this way should be thinking about being part of those consultations. Um, similarly, when we think about things that we don't have but we might get on the data protection regulation, a little bit tricky to say what industry responses are, I think, Dustin, um, when we haven't got... 
uh, a regulation finalised to look at. No, that's right. Sorry, I was distracted by the I was distracted by the Twitter feed going on up there. Beg your pardon. Um, so yeah, I, I think the um, I, I think we are very early on um, in in the process. I think. Um, you know, it, and it's hard to say. I mean, aside from some public submissions that were made about the data protection directive, it's very difficult to say. You know how how companies may or may not respond to, to these challenges. I mean, the text hasn't been passed yet. You know, it's subject potentially to further amendment. Um, you know, I, th I think there are concerns that any unsettled definition of profiling, you know, or a framework that forecloses more flexible methods for getting um, consent, you know, could drive websites to require all their users to um, uh, to give their explicit consent before interacting with the site. I mean that. You know, and with all of the interruptions to the user experience that that uh, might entail. And I think you know, the, the question that needs to be asked as well is where consent has to be explicit. That then creates a compliance burden for companies and query whether in the long run that's more or less privacy friendly because companies have to be able to show that they've got consent. And how do they show that they've got explicit consent? They need to um, be able to point to a record. And so query whether you know, those companies then end up having to keep a record of who's visited their site and whether that's more or less privacy friendly. So all these issues still up in the air um, and uh, you know, admittedly very high level and we're still, mm. still some way up. So we'll close with the last big ball that's up in the air in all of this. Interesting what's in the regulation, maybe more interesting will we get a regulation. Um, the UK have panned this at every opportunity. Uh, at the Council of Europe uh, ministers meeting in October, um, there were nine of the member states for a regulation, six including the UK were for a directive, Four were expressly undecided, and eight of the member states said nothing. So who knows what they want to do? Um, I think it's a kind of a watch this space on that one. Thank you.